Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I'm Jamie Floyd, host of All Things Considered at WNYC. You're listening to Politics Brief, a collection of our very best coverage of the 2018 midterm elections. We'll share the sharpest and most timely talk, analysis, and original reporting from shows like The Takeaway, The Brian Lehrer Show, On the Media, and Radio Lab Presents More Perfect, and from the WNYC Newsroom, which is watching key races in New York and New Jersey. Enjoy. Brian Lehrer on WNYC and on a deadline set by the Republican men in the Senate Judiciary Committee, Christine Blasey Ford had until 10 o'clock to say whether she would testify on Monday about her allegations about Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Dr. Blasey Ford did not agree to the Monday hearing last I saw, but it looks like that won't be the end of the story. In a statement released yesterday, Ford's attorney said that her client wishes to testify, but the Monday hearing would not be possible. Instead, they've asked to delay the hearing to Thursday, with her attorneys writing that the committee's insistence on Monday was arbitrary anyway. Now, Dr. Blasey Ford had been demanding an FBI investigation into her allegations before a hearing took place, but as she negotiates the terms of a possible Thursday hearing next week, a full investigation so far seems unlikely. Uh, The attorney said Dr. Blasey Ford, who has been receiving death threats since coming forward, would testify as long as they could agree on, quote, terms that are fair and which ensured her safety. As you probably heard, she's even had to move out of her house uh, because of fears of whatever kind of threat to her. A spokesman for the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, Chuck Grassley, said last night that um, he and his colleagues would be consulting on their next steps. So that deadline passed 36 minutes ago. We'll get an update now. And there's one other development. Only about an hour ago, President Trump, with his, can we say, characteristic understanding of what happens after sexual assaults, tweeted that he wants Dr. Blasey Ford to produce a police report from the time of the the alleged attempted rape, even though she, we already know, like so many women and girls, did not go to the police. Suddenly it's gloves off from Trump, apparently, to Blasey Ford. So now what? With us is Philip Bump, national correspondent for The Washington Post. Hi, Philip. Welcome back to WNYC. Hello. Thank you, sir. So the 10 a.m. deadline uh, has passed and the world did not end. <laughs> right, as is, as is often the case. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, that deadline was somewhat arbitrary. I mean, I think that the, the Senate Judiciary Committee was trying to just sort of move things forward and, and so establish that as a marker. Uh, the most recent update that I uh, am familiar with is that there was an email that was sent last night by Blasey Ford's uh, attorneys to the Judiciary Committee that made clear they weren't going to meet this morning's deadline uh, and set forward that uh, expectation that, that she would be able to provide testimony no sooner than next Thursday at the earliest. 
along with some other conditions, uh, including that Mark Judge, the conservative commentator who was allegedly also in the room, would need to be subpoenaed and interviewed as well, and other stipulations about how that appearance might look, including that she not be in the same room with Kavanaugh at any point. And Dr. Bozzi Ford's lawyer is saying that she will testify if they can agree on, quote, terms that are fair. Is it clear what terms are most important to her other than what you just mentioned? I think that that, that, that's broadly it. I mean, there still is this question of uh, the extent to which these things will have been investigated uh, prior to the hearing. Uh, Shortly after they initially said they wanted the FBI to look into this, her attorney did say, I think the same night even, that, that they were fine with any sort of independent investigation. The Senate has been doing, conducting an investigation through the auspices of the Judiciary Committee, which is, of course, controlled by Republicans, so it's not clear that would meet the standard. But in the email last night, she did didn't say that was necessarily a deal breaker. It seems like she may be willing to move forward even without that uh, independent investigation having been completed, but it's not really clear. And listeners, our phones are open for your comments or your questions for Philip Bump from the Washington Post on this Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford ongoing situation. Now 38 minutes past the 10 a.m. deadline, past which the world did not end. 212 433 WNYC, 212-433-9692. So this Trump development, this change in tone, really, uh, suddenly this morning he had been very cautious to, while saying that um, Brett Kavanaugh seems to him to be a man of the highest character, of not saying that Dr. Blasey Ford was making this up, not saying that it didn't happen, saying that she deserved a hearing, all of that. But this morning, uh, Trump tweeted just shortly before we went on the air, I have no doubt that if the attack on Dr. Ford was as bad as she says, charges would have immediately been filed with local law enforcement authorities by either her or her loving parents. Dripping with sarcasm about her parents. I ask that she bring those filings forward so that we can learn date, time, and place, unquote, from the president's Twitter feed this morning. Phil, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to assume that he's making that assertion in good faith. He, he's echoing something that's been out there uh, among his supporters uh, on social media for some time, that, that clearly if this had actually happened, that she would have filed some sort of police report. We actually saw this exact same dynamic play out in 2015 when uh, Corey Lewandowski, his campaign manager, was accused of having physically assaulted a reporter from Breitbart. Uh, Lewandowski denied it. Uh, a lot of his supporters and from himself said, well, why didn't you file a police report if this actually happened? And she ended up filing a police report. Corey Lewandowski faced charges, uh, and video emerged showing that this had actually happened. All of that said, this is also something that isn't common in these sorts of scenarios, as you alluded to. The Washington Post conducted a poll in 2015 with the Kaiser Family Foundation, and we asked college-aged women how often they had experienced assaults along these lines, and if they had, how often they reported it. So about 70% of people, uh, of young women who said that they had experienced these sorts of assaults or attempted assaults, said that they had told someone about it, but the vast majority of the time they had told friends or family members and not authorities. Only 12% of those who we surveyed said that they had spoken with authorities, either local police or college uh, administrators. And this was in 2015. It was a much different scene back in 1982 when this alleged attempt uh, occurred. I think it's much more common now for people to go to the authorities than it even was then. I think it's so well known that after incidents like the one 
that Dr. Blasey Ford alleges took place, um, there's such a high percentage of women, in that case girls, who didn't go to the police, who don't go to the police, who think they're going to be victimized again by going to authorities or think they're just going to enter into a you know, very uh, trying process that's not going to get them anything. Um, and I think she's even said that she never really, or any of the evidence they, that she presented about who she told anything to was from years later. But, I mean, anybody who knows anything about this topic knows that that's extremely common. So for Trump to th- throw down the gauntlet and say, produce your police report, I, I mean, it's just so consciously insulting to almost any woman who's ever suffered anything like this. Um, I guess he doesn't care. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we've seen repeatedly from President Trump is that he's not concerned about the toxicity of the national conversation around politics. And in fact, he often tries to amplify that toxicity for his own political benefit. And I think that we're seeing that happen here. We're seeing President Trump echoing what some of his more strident supporters are saying on social media because he knows that it will amplify his base. It'll get them pumped up. It'll cause them to ask uh, these sorts of bad faith questions that, that, that he's embracing here. And, you know, we, by now we've learned... Uh, Uh, that it's very hard to combat this. I mean, you and I can have this conversation saying that that's not how these things occur. This is not, you know, it it is uncommon uh, for young women in particular to come forward and say, this happened to me. It was more uncommon even at that point in time. Uh, But the, the, the point here is not whether or not this is a common thing, the point here is President Trump trying to undercut Blasey Ford's uh, allegations and therefore to promote Kavanaugh's nomination. But even from a political standpoint, unless he thinks this is only going to reverberate in the echo chamber of his core supporters, if what's so in play this midterm election year is the defection from the Republican Party uh, and the nominees for Congress or the incumbents, Republican incumbents in Congress of women, independent women, even a lot of Republican women, um, this would seem to fly in the face of the central political strategy of maintaining the House and Senate. One would think so, but, I mean, that's also something to which Donald Trump has never paid a great deal of attention. I mean, we saw this uh, this leaked poll that was uh, obtained by Bloomberg earlier this week in which it was determined that uh, Republicans are actually at more of a disadvantage this year because a lot of Republicans have bought Donald Trump's argument that there's going to be a red wave, that all the polls are wrong, that the Democrats are going to do poorly, and it's inspiring a lot of them to say, I don't need to, I'm not worried about this year's elections because Donald Trump says there's going to be a red wave. So there's a lot of ways in which Donald Trump's rhetoric, which serves him utility in the moment politically hurts him over the long run, potentially. I think this is another one of those uh, examples, as you point out. Already, Brett Kavanaugh is pretty unpopular. In most polling that I've seen, he's either at or below water in terms of whether or not people think he should be uh, confirmed to sit on the bench. And one of the main reasons that people oppose him, uh, it's uh, among women. Women are much more likely to oppose the Kavanaugh nomination. Even prior to this, uh, there were questions about his approach to Roe v. Wade and revisiting the question of abortion. Uh, This I can't possibly help him with women and may, to your point, help mobilize Democrats against Republicans. But in this moment, at 10 a.m. on this Friday morning, all Donald Trump cares about is undercutting her allegations and getting Kavanaugh on the bench. So that's what he's tweeting about. And at 1045 now on this Friday morning with Philip Bump of The Washington Post, Carol in Wayne. You're on WNYC. Carol, thank you so much for calling. 
Thank you for taking my call. Um, I have I heard a very good uh, point made, and I just would like to hear your comments on it. That um, if there was a a eyewitness to what happened, um, this person I believe his name is Judd uh, or Judge. Judge, Mark that, Judge, the friend of Kavanaugh, who was allegedly in the room and participating in this alleged attack. Yes, you would think that um, buddies horsing around or whatever would come forward and say, well, uh, you know, we were just horsing around and that he'd be willing to stand up under oath and and say something. But I understand he's quite reticent to stand up and speak out. And, and that just is an odd thing if people are innocent. Carol, thank you. Now, Mark Judge has uh, denied the incident, right? So he did defend his friend. Or am I missing something? I know, and we've been talking about it on the show and, you know, through the week, that he first just said he couldn't recall any such incident. And he did write a memoir about his drunken days in high school. So that might be um, consistent with that. But first he said he couldn't recall. Then he issued a flat denial. Then he went back to he couldn't recall. So I don't really get the whole Mark Judge positioning here. What can you tell us? So the most recent involvement that I've heard is through his attorney, he denied having uh, that, that he was present for any incident such as has been alleged. Uh, and he has denied uh, any interest in actually coming forward and testifying in a hearing. Uh, obviously, there's a big difference between releasing a statement through your attorney and sitting under oath uh, for a, a, a hearing in which both Republicans and Democrats are able to ask you questions. Uh, that is one of the stipulations that uh, uh, Blasey Ford's attorneys have established established for there to be hearing, that Ford actually come forward and testify under oath, uh, which I think gets to the point that the, the caller was making, that this mm-hmm. seems like an important step. Uh, but, you know, this is, this is someone who is now active. He is a conservative commentator. He is active in the political world. Uh, and it seems pretty clear that he also supports Kavanaugh's nomination. And I think that from that standpoint alone, he is disinterested in raising more questions about what may or may not have happened. Well, who gets to decide? I mean... We're talking about things so far here where what seems like common sense to have an FBI investigation, which takes place into every Supreme Court nominee, and we know was reopened after Anita Hill came forward late in the process for Clarence Thomas uh, and other such circumstances, um, it would seem like common sense to do an official government fact-finding of some kind before they enter into a public hearing where it's just going to be one person's word against another person's word. It seems like common sense that the only other person allegedly in the room would be called as a witness. It's making my head explode. The things that seem like they would be obvious in any proceeding designed to get to the truth um, are being resisted and that there isn't the power to make them happen. Right. So the the Senate Republicans run this process by virtue of having the majority in the Senate. And I think that there is a mix uh, among Senate Republicans, including Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee and including Senate Majority Mitch McConnell, between people who sincerely believe that this is all a fabrication by the Democrats, a last-minute way to try and throw a wrench into the Kavanaugh nomination system, uh, and and something that they see as to- being totally politically motivated. Yeah mix between people like that and a mix between people who uh, move this thing forward. Right, but, but, even, but even to that point, Judge would be a witness on his side. Well, yes, possibly, but A, 
may, it adds more time. And one of the things that we've heard is that they want to have this thing be done sooner rather than later with the, with the midterms looming. Uh, and second, they don't know what he's going to say, right? If he's under oath and he's asked a question, he may cast doubt in a way that is not helpful to them. And I think that that's probably one of the reasons that people aren't terribly eager to have him come testify if they support Kavanaugh. You're listening to the Politics Brief Podcast. We'll be back after a quick break. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, a young writer attaches himself to a rising star in politics named Barack Obama. Interesting guy. Speaks in what sound like paragraphs. Very good posture, that guy. Enviable posture. <laughs> I am a writer, and I have this, this very slight hunch, and he has none of that. A political coming-of-age story from staff writer Vincent Cunningham, plus actor and director Bradley Cooper, all on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcast. Let's take another caller. Lydia in Roslyn. You're on WNYC. Hi, Lydia. Hi. I, I, I guess I have both a comment and a question. I'm still wondering what the rush is. This is a lifetime appointment. I told you, Screener, that back in the 70s when I was 16 years old, a very, very similar thing happened to me, only I was raped. I didn't even just get the maybe or maybe not of it. And I did not tell my family for over 30 years, and even that was heart-wrenching to do that. I still don't like to talk about it. And when I hear somebody young going through something similar, just give everybody a minute, settle down, let her tell a story, let him make his point. But it is a lifelong appointment. He has so much time on his hands once he gets there. How do you react? Given your experience, Lydia, specifically to the president's tweet about an hour ago that said, if this really happened, show us your police report from the time. I did not. I was so I did not know what to do with myself. I thought maybe it was my fault because I put myself in a party. I had no idea that any I didn't know how to react to it again. 16 years old. You don't even know your own body at that point. You are just establishing who you are as a young lady. I was horrified to tell my parents. I thought they would blame me. You're the one who went to the party. Why did you go there? Why were you with those people? Of course, many years later, my mother cried with me because she was so upset about the whole thing. And in hindsight, I do wish I would have gone to the police. But you don't. And, and for him to say her parents or a report, uh, you know, I wish him well. Nothing should happen to him or his children. He should never have to live through this. But nobody understands unless you've been through it yourself. Nobody. Lydia, thank you so much for your courage in calling up and putting it out there. Even now, publicly on the radio, I think that was helpful to a lot of people. Um, Philip, back to the FBI investigation for a minute. Um, I want to play a clip of Senator Kirsten Gillibrand at a conference with, Sen- news conference, I should say, with Senator Maisie Hirono. Hirono sits on the Judiciary Committee um, as they pondered the notion, shouldn't Kavanaugh welcome an FBI investigation? Um, if he's innocent, wouldn't it be Blasey Ford who should fear an FBI investigation if she's making it up, but she's the one who wants it? Here's Senator Gillibrand. Someone who is lying does not ask the FBI to investigate their claims. Who is not asking the FBI to investigate these claims? The White House. Dr. Kavanaugh, excuse me, Judge Judge Kavanaugh has not asked 
to have the FBI review these claims. Is that the is that the reaction of an innocent person? It is not. So, Philip Bump from The Washington Post, what is the Kavanaugh camp or the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee or whoever's most relevant um, say to that assertion? Well, I mean, the, the, the rationale behind not having the FBI dig into this is essentially that uh, uh, this is something that can be handled by Senate investigators and that the FBI doesn't necessarily have jurisdiction. That, that is, as you pointed out, not, not accurate. Uh, the FBI could be asked by the White House to dig into this. And as you also pointed out, and they did so in 1991 after Anita Hill came forward. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that we get into tricky ground when we say that people should be willing to have the FBI investigate them uh, based on accusations. I mean, I mean, even innocent people shouldn't actively ask the FBI to investigate them. It, you know, there's obviously some, some landmines there. Uh, but the point is well taken, that why would this woman, if she is being accused of having made this thing up, why would she want federal investigators to, 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 to dig into this? And I think that the answer to that is pretty clearly, A, that she uh, is uh, telling a story that she believes is accurate, and then secondarily, to establish a baseline of facts before she goes into that Senate hearing, to be able to say, here are the things that the FBI uncovered that everyone has an agreed-upon baseline of what is and isn't known, instead of having the Senate Judiciary Committee and other Senate Republicans be be able to make the argument, well, this is just he said, she said. I think that's partly what she's trying to escape. Robert in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hi, Robert. Hello. Go ahead, go ahead, Robert. What's your point? Uh, um, my question is this. Uh, Kavanaugh went to Georgetown Prep, which is in Maryland. Uh, I know that the Attorney General of Maryland is a Democrat, and I'm wondering if there's an investigation, if the FBI won't do it, through the AG in Maryland, who would help log, uh, break the log jam. That's pretty interesting. Philip, has anybody else suggested that um, if the FBI won't investigate as a fact-finding body since this alleged incident took place in Maryland? Could the Maryland State Attorney General investigate on behalf of the public interest as directed, I guess, in that case? Well, the Attorney General could make the um, the decision themselves. They're I, the caller says that Attorney General is a Democrat. Right, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I, I've heard this sort of bandied about, and I have not dug too deep into what the uh, statute of limitations is in the state. My understanding is there may be uh, some statute of limitations that would allow them to open an investigation. From the standpoint of the Kavanaugh nomination, it seems extremely unlikely that if Maryland were to get geared up today, they would be able to do a comprehensive investigation over the sort of time frame that the Senate wants to move this thing forward, and the Senate Republicans do control that time frame. They can choose to uh, hold hearings whenever they want to do so, uh, and it seems unlikely they would wait for an investigation from Maryland. It's also the point that while Maryland's Attorney General may be Democrat, their governor is a Republican, and while he is a pretty moderate Republican, I don't know that he's going to want to sting, uh, stick his finger in the president's eye in that way. Kevin in Montclair, we're, you're on WNYC. Hi, Kevin. Hi, good morning. Um, well, I told your screener that, you know, this whole thing troubled me about 30-year-old investigations in the sense that I think it's going to backfire on the left. Um, but even just as I was waiting, I, I recalled words earlier today. I heard an interview with Michael Moore who said that part of the reason we ended up with Trump was that the left doesn't fight dirty enough. So I guess I'm torn, and maybe I'd ask your questioner, what does he think? Uh, you know, because I, I'm torn. I, I'm, I'm troubled by, you know, 
I, they, I'm troubled by what happened, but at the same time, the way it's being played out in the media and everything and interviews with the Washington Post, I, it should have been handled confidentially, in my opinion. But, you know, if we need to fight dirty like the other side, then I guess that's the new normal. I don't know. Kevin, thank you. Well, to Kevin's ambivalence, um, what do you say, Phil? Um, I would say that there's been a lot of misrepresentation about how this evolved, which I think is reflected to some extent in, in that comment. So, uh, uh, Blasey Ford sent a letter to Senator Dianne Feinstein in July, which I think is pretty widely known. People uh, uh, often, uh, in bad faith, are saying that Feinstein basically sat on that until late in the process. It's not really what happened. She went through uh, a process internally to try and, as the letter requested, protect Blasey Ford's identity. Uh, but she found stumbling blocks because she wasn't able to actually, if she couldn't say who had done this thing, it was hard for investigators to move forward on it. That letter then leaked. That leak then led to the Washington Post uh, first reporting uh, who the woman was that was making this accusation. So there was a sort of background process that was happening. Uh, and I think that the fair assumption here based on what we know about what happened is that this evolved as is being presented by Blasey Ford, that she knew this thing was imminent. She sent a letter to her senator saying, hey, here's some information that you should know about, but I don't want to be dragged into this for what I think are pretty obvious reasons, that Feinstein then tried to go through a process, you know, whether or not it was as rapid as possible, sort of hard to evaluate from the outside. But then it reached a point earlier this month when she decided that she would come forward to draw attention to what had happened, and now here we are. I mean, this is, while this is fairly late in the process for Kavanaugh, this is not an, it has not been an exceptionally slow or fast process. This is about normal, I think it's safe to say, in terms of how long this nomination process has taken so far. So it is not as though this sort of was dropped at the very last. It's not like they dropped it immediately before the Senate, where it was the vote on the Senate floor or something along those lines. Uh, so I think there's been a lot of sort of assumption being made about how this happened in a way mm-hmm. that is viewed through a partisan lens that I think is often unfair. I saw a stat that the past six Supreme Court nominations took an average of 73 days from nomination to confirmation. Today happens to be day 73. So if this gets delayed one more week to sort this all out or two more weeks, uh, it's not going to be that far beyond the average. It would still be in the in the general average zone. Do you think there was any scenario under which Dr. Blasey Ford could have remained anonymous and this accusation of something that happened allegedly 36 years ago could have been investigated and taken seriously and played a role in the deliberations over whether to confirm him? No, I don't think there's any way that she could have had her anonymity revealed or uh, uh, protected to federal investigators. There's certainly no way that federal investigators couldn't have known who she was if they were going to actually investigate this claim. And I think that that required, too, then her identity being revealed to uh, Senate Republicans. My understanding is that Feinstein brought this to uh, the, the leadership on the Senate Judiciary Committee to ask for an investigation, but wouldn't reveal to those senators who this was. Uh, so I think it would have been very, very difficult. And I think, honestly, you know, one of the standards of the American judiciary system is that you have the right to confront your accusers. Uh, and I think that while this is uncomfortable, if uh, Blasey Ford wanted to be able to have this information known and have it be important to the conversation about Kavanaugh's nomination, I think she was in a tricky position to then try and maintain her anonymity throughout uh, if she, you know, if this were going to be an issue that was was central to his 
to his nomination. So as we wrap up with Philip Bump from the Washington Post, Philip, what happens now? It's now 11 o'clock, that deadline supposedly for Dr. Blasey Ford to accept a hearing for Monday, um, that 10 a.m. deadline, you know, passed an hour ago. Uh, we apparently have no resolution from whatever negotiations are taking place behind the scenes. What actually happens next? I think the question is now up to Senate Republicans as to whether or not they want to let her testify later in the week. Uh, if they decide not to, I think that that reflects, uh, I think that will be poorly received from a political standpoint. And if they decide to, then we move forward and have these hearings, which I, which I think you know, it opens up a whole new can of worms that we can all spend a lot more time talking about over the next couple of weeks. She offered Thursday, but right. with the particular terms still to be negotiated, right? That's right. That's right. Philip Ump, national correspondent for The Washington Post. Thank you very, very much. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to WNYC.org slash election.